Hey guys, welcome back to the Black Case Diaries Hello. podcast. Hey. Ha ha, we're three old friends learning everything we can about TV and films and hopefully teaching others in the process. I'm Adam. I'm Robin. And I'm Marcy. Ha 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 ha. Same old crew. Hey. That's right. You didn't know. Back again. <laughs> That's right. Tell a friend. <laughs> <laughs> So way back in the ancient time of 2018, God, that's so long ago, <laughs> we started our podcast. Back then, we were a different show. We had we did less research, almost no scripting, and we also had only one microphone. Yeah. So wow. mm. editing was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> this was how we recorded our second episode ever. The case of second chances. Yeah. That was a fun one, wasn't it? It was. It we really were so was. young and optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> this show's gonna take off. Oh God. <laughs> if you never listened to it, the three of us brought a film that we believed deserved a second chance. This could be one of two things. A movie we saw once and hated, but enjoyed the second time. Or a movie that was unpopular with critics and viewers that we think deserves a second look. Well, that was a long time ago. So we're giving that episode a second chance with our new equipment, new research skills, and new movies that deserve another watch. That's right. Yes. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a reboot, but not really. <laughs> yeah. It's like a C-boot. It's like a sequel <laughs> Oh, <reboot. it's>, yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll go with it. Cool. So the idea of this episode, everyone should see a movie at least twice. That's what we say. Why? Well, because context is everything. Maybe you were in a bad mood the first time you watched something. <clears throat> Maybe you had unrealistic expectations based on all the hype surrounding the movie. Maybe you were in a difficult place in your life or recent events swayed your opinion. Of course, different people have different tastes. But if you hate something, you should have reasons why. And maybe those reasons could be affected by another viewing. So I think Marcy's going to go first. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Gotcha. Oh, guys. Why me? <laughs> okay. So, in 1993, a movie called Sleepless in Seattle came out. It was directed by Nora Ephron, who had already become known for the classic When Harry Met Sally from 1989. The story follows two main characters and how they find each other and fall in love. The first is Sam Baldwin, who is a widower with a young son named Jonah. The second is Annie Reed, who is a recently engaged reporter in Baltimore. The young boy Jonah calls into a radio show where he tells Dr. Marsha Fieldstone that his dad needs to remarry. When Sam ends up on the phone and thus on the radio, the women of the country fall in love with him but especially Annie, who writes and asks them to meet her on top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. Also, Marsha Fieldstone is definitely making fun of love songs with Delilah. Yes. If you guys, uh, if you guys ever listened to that radio show, I did <laughs> as a kid, and I made fun of it relentlessly, but I still listened to it every night when I went to sleep. Nice. Yeah. So... Who created this movie? Well, film producer Gary Foster brought Nora Ephron on to direct Sleepless in Seattle. There was already a script, but he knew that she could rework it and make it magic, just as she had put her own spin on When Harry Met Sally. In order to accomplish this movie, she also brought in her sister Delia to help. So this movie... I received it as a gift from my brother, Greg, and my sister-in-law, Janine. I think I was actually in high school when I watched it, so kind of young. And, of course, it's one of those classic romantic movies that everyone hears about. You know, how could you not? It has Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks as the leads. Yeah, Tom yeah. Hanks is, like, whenever he does anything, it's just all over the place. <laughs> yep. So when I think about it, I believe one of the reasons I didn't enjoy it as much as I had hoped is that Annie and Sam, the two main characters in it, really don't spend time together in this movie. They're mostly separate, and they're explored individually until the final scene when they officially get to meet each other. And at that time, you know, I'm in high school. I want these romantic movies where, you know, they're they're oh, spending time together. Yeah. And, you want sexual you know, tension and chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> Most romances do that, so exactly. it's not unrealistic. No. 
And I would also be remiss if I did not say that it bugged me that Bill Pullman was the man that Meg Ryan leaves. I forgot that that oh, was Bill wow. Pullman. Yes. Yes. Oh, so boy. Bill Pullman is her fiance in this one, which He's she weird, leaves. Though. He is weird. He's weird. <laughs> so uh, up to this point, I had watched movies such as Spaceballs and While You Were Sleeping, which had him as the handsome leading man. It felt wrong that he was the allergic, sneezing, and almost unlikable fiance in this movie. Oh, <laughs> they like yeah. forcibly made him. Yeah, un- he was not very appealing, unattractive. Really. Yeah, yeah, they do this a lot, <laughs> where they'll make the person that they're already with unappealing, so that the audience doesn't feel so bad about her leaving him. Yeah, yeah. The, the ones for me that make it really easy are when they're obviously the biggest asshole you've ever mm-hmm. seen. Oh yeah, it's like yeah. well. Pff- Get rid no. of that guy for they, sure. They did not do that Ugh. in this movie. So I obviously gave this movie a second chance. And one of the reasons that I did this is that I don't know if you guys know this, but Sleepless in Seattle is like a soft retelling of an old movie called An Affair to Remember. Which, fun fact, this would be the first of two retellings that Meg and Tom would take part in. The next would be You've Got Mail, which is The Shop Around the Corner. Not only does this movie have similar storyline, but it also references An Affair to Remember several times. When I found out later, probably in college, that An Affair to Remember was an actual movie from Robin and her mom, actually... I had to watch it. So I I went to the local library and checked it out and gave it a watch. Once I had watched it, Sleepless made more sense. I then rewatched Sleepless in Seattle, and here we are. (laughs) My mind was changed, and I got a new perspective on what the movie was. Even watching it a third and fourth time, there's more to get with each watch. Oh, yeah. Very nice. I was really surprised when you told me you didn't like this movie because I yeah. saw it when I was a kid <laughs> and I thought it was pretty good. So when you told me you didn't like it, you okay. probably were like, this is like right up your alley. What yeah, you? I was really confused about why you didn't like the movie. Are you the same Marcy that uh, I yeah. met? <laughs> and uh, it is kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for anyone who does not know what an affair to remember is, it's a movie from 1957 during the time of the Hayes Code. Oh, my. It stars Cary Grant as Nikki Ferranti and Deborah Carr as Terry McKay. They are both engaged to other people, but they meet on a cruise from Europe to New York. They fall in love and agree to meet at the top of the Empire State Building in six months if they still feel the same way about each other. Tragedy strikes, however, when she is not able to make it because she is in an accident that cripples her. She is too proud to ask him for help until she gets better, and he is too angry and hurt to ask why she did not show. It's really a dramatic but beautiful movie, and it's what leads the motivations for love in Sleepless in Seattle. A great example of the dramatics in this movie is when Terry says the famous line, Winter must be cold for those with no warm memories. We've already missed the spring. Mm -hmm. Pride is a big problem in old movies. It's a big old plot conflict that they always have to get over. Yeah, this movie, I thought it was just a made-up movie in Sleepless in Seattle. I just assumed, like, oh, this isn't, this isn't, like, exist in our world. Like, I mean, it's obviously just in... In this movie, but yeah, when I found out that, I was like, what? Yeah. yeah. It does seem a bit random. Yeah, it does. Why are they yes. talking about this why? weird fake movie all the time? So, it has some stars in it. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, of course. Ross Malinger plays the son. Rita Wilson is Sam's sister, and Victor Garber is his brother-in-law. And that's Tom Hanks' wife in real life. Ah, Bill Pullman, as we talked earlier, as Annie's fiance. Now, I have to say, due to watching An Affair to Remember, I was able to reconcile with Bill Pullman in this movie. He is very much like the fiance in An Affair to Remember. He does not want to be the one someone settles with. He's a strong character for this, especially because he does not hold it against her. Right. That's good, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's great when there's characters like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Characters that are, like, real people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a real person would not be, you know, or, like, at least a respectful person would, yeah. would not be like, no, you must stay with me. I don't like, care if you were why unhappy. Why are you doing this to me? Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, they'll cry later when the door's <laughs> yeah. closed and they're alone. Yeah. I mean. But he's like, you know what? If, you you know, this isn't for you, go, go after this other guy. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I don't want you to resent me. And then we have Rosie O'Donnell plays Annie's friend, and Rob Reiner is one of Sam's friends. Nice. What's really special about this movie is that there's a lot to unpack. This is a movie that is as much about how movies shape our ideas and thoughts about love as it is about finding love. The director's sister, Delia Efron, said in the movie featurette that this isn't a movie about love. It is a movie about love in the movies. Oh, okay. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. The fact that movies are a part of everyone's lives is pointed out many times throughout. Some other movies mentioned are Fatal Attraction and The Dirty Dozen. There's a scene, actually, where Sam, the character Sam, is talking to his young son and they're fighting about whether or not they should go see this random woman at the Empire State Building. And Sam said, there is no way that we are going on a plane to meet some woman who could be a crazy, sick lunatic. lunatic. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? You wouldn't let me. Well, I saw it. And it scared the shit out of me. It scared the shit out of every man in America. <laughs> <laughs> and there's actually a lot of amazing lines within this movie. There's a scene where Annie is talking to Becky, her friend. So Becky is played by Rosie O'Donnell. They are also watching a scene from An Affair to Remember at this part. And Annie says, now that was when people knew how to be in love. They knew it. Time, distance, nothing could separate them because they knew. It was right. It was real. It was a movie. That's your problem. You don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. I mean, in the movies, the the kind of love they depict is never wrong. Yep. So. Then there's one last one, and this one, it's when Sam is talking about his wife that has passed away. And he says, it was a million tiny little things that when you added them all up, they meant we were supposed to be together. And I knew it. I knew it the first time I touched her. It was like coming home, only to no home I'd ever known. I was just taking her hand to help her out of a car, and I knew it. It was like magic. Oh, Movie magic. Crowd goes, oh. <laughs> so I picked this movie because I did not like it upon first watch. I was probably in the minority on this, <laughs> being that it currently has a 6.8 out of 10 on IMDb, a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 72 on Metacritic. At the box office worldwide when it came out, it made $227 million. So even though it came out around the time of Jurassic Park, it did pretty well for itself. (laughs) (laughs) Even Roger Ebert had this to say about it. Sleepless in Seattle is as ephemeral as a talk show, as contrived as the late show, and yet so warm and gentle, I smiled the whole way through. Very nice. Aww. But it ain't got dinosaurs in it, I'll tell you that much <laughs> right now. So I have a few fun facts for you here. Lydia Ruth, the smoke... The smokes lady. <laughs> the smokes it. The smokes person is the person on set who hands out cigarettes to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> they used to they, have those back in 1993. Did they really? No. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like it could be legit. Though. I mean, I mean, they probably <laughs> in like early Hollywood, they probably did have like a cigarette person. Probably. Lydia Ruth, the spokeswoman for the corporation that runs the Empire State Building, said that after the movie was released, people kept calling to ask if the heart could be displayed on the sides of the building, like in the movie. 
Unfortunately, they could not because it had been computer generated for the movie. Oh, yeah. bummer. Yeah, which now watching the movie, you can definitely tell. You can be like, <laughs> that, that's computer generated. But I can see how then it would have been probably pretty, pretty good gra- you know, graphics for then. The final scene at the Empire State Building almost did not happen. They had per- been turned away from shooting at the building. But luckily, the director, Nora Ephron, was able to pull it off because she knew the publicist for the building's owner. The owner, Leona Helmsley, was currently in jail for tax evasion, but allowed them just six hours to shoot those final shots. Oops. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know how she was able to keep the building in her possession, but... (laughs) And this movie was so popular that it actually became a stage musical at the Pasadena Playhouse and was set to be made into a Broadway production and uh, have a London premiere. And even through COVID, they were still planning for a socially distant opening in London during August of this year. And you can, we'll link to a little sneak peek of one of the songs called Out of My Hands. That's pretty cool. I didn't realize that it was like right now happening. Like they, Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah. now they want it to be a thing. In 2013, I believe it it was the Pasadena Playhouse. Okay, so there. Yeah, so it's, it's taken a little, it's kind of progressed through, through the years, but yeah. So cool. That was my second chance. I gave it a second chance, and wow. I'm, I'm glad I did, because I I like it. I'm glad you did, too. <laughs> yep. Second chance success, right? Yeah, Ooh. that's right. This is why we watch movies twice. Yes. Right. At least. All right. My turn. <laughs> as far back as 1999, Pixar, of all companies, had an alleged interest in creating a sequel to the 1982 film Tron, after it garnered a cult following. Rumors further ignited after the 2003 release of the video game Tron 2.0. But it wouldn't be until 2005 when Disney would finally begin a somewhat lackluster effort to devise that sequel. They began by hiring Brian Klugman and Lee Sternthal as writers. Then Joseph Kosinski was brought to direct two years into the project. As he was not very optimistic about Disney's Matrix-esque approach to the film, Kaczynski filmed a high concept which he used to convey his version of the Tron universe and convince Disney to fully greenlight the film. After a five-year production, Tron Legacy premiered in Tokyo on November 30th, 2010 and was released worldwide on December 17th of the same year. Upon its release, the film received mixed reviews. Critics praised the visual effects, production, and soundtrack, but criticized the character development, cast performances, and story. Despite this, Tron Legacy would gross $400 million during its theatrical run, making it a box office success. It was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sound Editing, even though it lost to Inception. In the end, like the original Tron before it, Tron Legacy has been described as a cult classic. I (laughs) am doing Tron Legacy. That is my second chance movie, and it will be different from Marcy's. I liked this movie from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I watched it the first time and liked it, and I still like it. But not not a whole lot of other people (laughs) like it. But before I get into that part, I'm going to start off here with the cast. It starred Garrett Hudland as Sam Flynn, who is a primary stockholder of NCOM, who, while investigating his father's disappearance, is transported to the grid. We'll be talking about the grid a lot. (laughs) Jeff Bridges as Kevin Flynn, the former CEO of NCOM and creator of the popular in-universe arcade game Tron which is also an arcade game in real life, (laughs) who disappeared in 1989 while developing, quote, a digital frontier that will reshape the human condition. Bridges also portrays Clue, or codified likeness utility, a more advanced version of Flynn's original computer hacking program designed as an exact duplicate of himself within the grid. Mm. 
And we'll talk about that character specifically <laughs> as one of the reasons people are uh, put off by the movie. <laughs> Olivia Wilde as Cora, an isomorphic algorithm or a new form of life born from the grid, the last of her kind and an adept warrior and confidant of Kevin Flynn. Hmm. Next we have Bruce Boxlitner as Alan Brady, an executive consultant for Encom and close friend of Kevin, who, after receiving a cryptic page from the office of the shutdown Flynn's Arcade, encourages Sam to investigate its origin. And uh, Boxlitner also portrays Tron, and he was also Tron in the original Tron yeah. movie, too. Michael Sheen as Caster, a flamboyant supermodel program who runs the end-of-the-line club at the top of the tallest tower in the system. <laughs> he is probably the wackiest character in the whole movie, <laughs> and I think they did it on purpose. And finally, James Frain as Jarvis, and not the Jarvis from Avengers, an administration program who serves as Clue's right-hand man and chief intelligence officer. So, nice. got a pretty cool cast. The heavy hitter, obviously, being Jeff Bridges, but... Who's that? <laughs> he, he was the one who played the surfer penguin in Surf's Up. That's oh, his big... <laughs> you know. Oh, big Z. Got it, got it. Yeah. So, as I said, this movie is not everyone's favorite. Though the scores here aren't devastating you right. know they're not yeah. the worst in the world it's kind of middle of the road yeah it actually has a 6.8 on imdb just like oh, sleepless in seattle sleepless. Hey. um but then rotten tomatoes and metacritic aren't as nice oh. um 51 <laughs> on rotten tomatoes and 49 on metacritic so let me uh expand on why it's not everyone's favorite the biggest hook for tron legacy is its special effects there are over 1,500 visual effects shots in this movie, all of which blend a variety of CGI techniques, including everyone's favorite computer-generated Jeff Bridges. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is you can't make a film solely on its CGI potential. Looking at you, James Cameron. I mean, it worked out pretty well for him, but... Yeah. I know, but... While Tron Legacy brings great visuals, it has little in terms of thematic or character depth. It takes itself incredibly seriously, but lacks any motivation other than, he's my dad, or I'm blue and he's red, so he must be the bad guy. <laughs> now for some, amazing visuals is enough. However, by 2010, audiences were used to the huge amount of CGI in films. Another big issue with Tron Legacy is that it comes across as a disappointing waste of potential. In 2010, video games had become a mainstream norm and a major part of pop culture. They have helped shape decades of storytelling and creative expectations. Stories about the omnipresence of technology and its growing grip on our daily lives make up a significant portion of science fiction. Think of Terminator or Black Mirror. So Tron Legacy has all of these fascinating angles to explore, yet does nothing with them. Yes. So it's a little bit shallow. Yeah. It, it is enjoyable. Like, mm -hmm. it's not... I don't think it's, you watch it and you're just, you know, really upset about what's going on in, mm -hmm. in the movie. However, I would say that I'm just generally across the board not a huge fan of the mm. big CGI movies that lack story. Mm -hmm. it's, story is such an important thing for me for yeah. As, yeah. A, as a movie watcher. So if I... So, you know, I, I get where all the, the problems are. The music's incredible. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So the, the music's really good. Yeah. And the first Tron is also really good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, looking back on it, it's like, oh, look at this kind of corny little mm -hmm. 80s movie, right? But yeah. it still has I something mean, to it, you know? 80s corn is the best corn. Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But like I said, I really like this movie. I am a sucker for visual effects and I'm easily <laughs> transported to new and interesting worlds. So like, unlike you, Robin, story isn't quite as important. I mean, do I love a good story? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I can suspend my 
my need for a story for a good visual party. Yeah. I believe Tron Legacy did this and did it well. As soon as Sam enters the grid, I'm instantly put in the, oh man, this is so cool, mindset. I find myself even now wanting to attempt a Tron, Tron Legacy cosplay one day. I think it would be super cool, <laughs> that would be cool. Because the costumes and the visual style is really easy, but striking and unique. The music is absolutely amazing, and I continually listen to the soundtrack. Daft Punk were able to capture the sound of a dark and mysterious electronic dystopia that mixes old and new, while also giving their iconic electronic sound an orchestral twist. Mm -hmm. It is super duper awesome because they are known for their dance electronic mm -hmm. awesome yeah. beats, right? With yep. robotic sounds and voices. Yeah. But they took that kind of slowed it and spread it out and also added in a lot of orchestral theming like there is an orchestra right. in in a lot of the tracks and it just works so well for this world yeah jeff bridges is also one of my very favorite actors mm -hmm. and he brings it as both clue and kevin flynn i took the system to its maximum potential i created the perfect system the thing about perfection is that it's unknowable. It's impossible, but it's also right in front of us all the time. You wouldn't know that because I did when I created you. I'm sorry, Clue. Say what you want about the CGI <laughs> young version, but that wasn't on him. Clue is still a wonderfully acted and intimidating villain. And it is also fascinating to see how Flynn handles being a prisoner in his own creation. So for me, the film does enough to entertain. It's not, I'm not going to hold a thin plot against it. The story is compelling enough for me to want to move forward and see the next great visual spectacle. So I can't lie and tell you that it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say Tron Legacy's enduring popularity among cult fans was because of its Oscar-worthy plot. <laughs> its focus was clearly less on story and more on visual uniqueness, something that would help it stand out in a crowded market of Star Wars knockoff sci-fi while Disney tried to find its way in. Now, Disney would go on to simply purchase Lucasfilm instead. Still, what Tron Legacy did have was real forward momentum and a great blend of retro and modern. It's a classic hero's journey full of tasks Sam must complete to save the day, mixed with the boundary-pushing technology and art direction. I would say that having a sci-fi franchise like this within Disney that's not Star Wars is really nice, and mm -hmm. I think that they should have a lot more yep. different sci-fi things that yes. are not Star Wars. I agree. Yeah. And see, before they bought Lucasfilm in 2012, they tr they were trying. Yeah. They were trying. And Tron was a good attempt. We all love a good popcorn flick every now and again, but Tron Legacy also stands out in one particular way that makes it worth watching. While I was re-watching this movie for this episode, I was struck with an idea of a term that I couldn't shake. That being calm action. That's what I like to call it. This movie has a certain flow to it that is unlike anything else I can think of. During some of the most action-heavy scenes, what is happening can actually be seen on the screen and is able to be easily followed and understood. It lacks the hundreds of quick cuts that many big-budget action movies are filled with. Even the climax of the film is a great example of a chilled-out action scene where everything down to the very movement of the vehicles are long, slow, and smooth. This is what I mean by calm action. To the characters living in it, the action may be hectic and intense, but to those of us watching, we are able to observe like a true audience. And I think that is a really cool difference that Tron Legacy has. Yeah. The most action-heavy pieces, the disc fighting, the light cycles and the light airplanes. I don't know if they gave them a name, but all of them move in a way that is just like water. 
you know, flowing through. Riding the bike is probably like, oh, God, this is so fast (laughs) and intense. But we're all we're able to understand what's going on. The Mm -hmm. whole thing is shown to us. We can see bad guys coming a mile away, that kind of stuff. It's a really different way of filming and editing action together because it's all one big piece. And it's not a zillion and one cuts where we don't even know what's going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really that's really cool. Actually, it's a really great way to do it because it is so easy to be overwhelmed when action movies do all of these cuts, and I'll, I would even say the Avengers movies do too many cuts. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. it's really hard to, you to follow everything that's going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Transformers is probably the worst culprit of it, where it gets mm-hmm. to a point where. I remember watching Transformers at the theater and just picking a corner of the screen and just staring at that because at some point <laughs> I just couldn't follow what was happening and yeah. it was hurting my head. Yep. Oh my gosh. It, and it's a similar thing with movies like Godzilla too, especially the one from 2014. One of the big complaints is quit cutting away from the fights. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? They'll either cut away to save money on that CG or they'll be zoomed in way too much so you can't see what the heck's going on. Yeah. But Tron Legacy... Thankfully, doesn't do that. So you can see that Tron Legacy did a lot of important things really well. It expanded the original concept of the grid into an entire realm filled with endless possibilities, while still remaining true to the source material and its characters. It gave us an awesome new character in Korra, who is a great mix of naivete and ass-kickery. <laughs> And on top of that, some absolutely brilliant atmospheric Daft Punk tunes. Yeah. Gotta love it. Jamming. Overall, Tron Legacy is a well-done sci-fi movie with an interesting world that can be built on and explored even further. It is a visual marvel and a musical masterwork. So even if just for a taste of the original Tron nostalgia, it deserves a second chance. Let's go watch yeah. it right now. I know. Let's Just do it. Stop the episode. It's on and... Disney Plus. Oh, All nice. right. And it's available. And if you're feeling particularly digital and you want to hang out on the grid for a while, there's also a sh- TV show that oh. I didn't know about. An animated TV show that only lasted one season. It's got like 12-ish episodes. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Might have to go watch it. It takes place yeah. right after um, Tron Legacy. Oh, cool. And whispers of a third one. Are happening because, like I said, it was a financial success, and Disney loves money. Yeah. And, like you said, maybe maybe they want to do some more sci-fi besides Star Wars. It'd be nice. Yeah. It would be nice. And also, I think it would be cool for them to do another one if they just kind of update it with new technology every mm-hmm. few years, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Just wait to see that young Jeff Bridges again. Yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Well, I won't say. <laughs> but he probably won't be in the next one. I'll say. But there it is. Give Tron Legacy a second chance, why don't you? All right. Okay. I guess it's my turn. Ha <laughs> finally. So back in 2011, an R-rated comedy smashed the box office and took the world by storm. At the time, raunchy buddy comedies were all the rage, i.e. The Hangover, Role Models, Hot Tub Time Machine, which proved that adult audiences craved more grown-up humor. But there was another reason that this particular movie was making headlines. And history. It was written by and starred women. That's right. I'm talking about Bridesmaids. Whoa. Yeah. If you're unfamiliar, you're probably familiar, but if you're unfamiliar, Bridesmaids follows Annie, Kristen Wiig, as she struggles through her adult life alongside her bestie, Lillian, played by Maya Rudolph. When Lillian announces that she is getting married, Annie agrees to be the maid of honor. After meeting the rest of the bridal party, Annie soon discovers that she must compete with the beautiful wife of the groom's boss, Helen. Helen majored in passive-aggressive in college, and she quickly takes over (laughs) and outshines Annie at every turn. Will Annie be able to hold it together and guide her best friend down the aisle, or is she in danger of losing her best friend forever? Dun, dun, dun. Find out next week. (laughs) Goodbye. So before we get into the movie, I want to talk a little bit about how it was made and the creators and the cast and all of that really fun stuff. Yeah. When Judd Apatow directed his 2007 movie, Knocked Up, he was impressed with Kristen Wiig's comedic acting. 
he approached her and asked her to write a movie of her choice for him to produce. Wig asked her friend and fellow castmate at the Groundlings Theater School, Annie Mumolo, to co-write a screenplay. As you notice, Annie, same name as the main character, she was named after the co-writer. Aww, Aha. that's sweet. From the beginning, the idea was to write an ensemble comedy simply because they themselves knew a lot of funny women. They say to write what you know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. After the first draft was written, Apatow contacted his friend Paul Feig. Feig had been looking to create a female-led comedy since he felt that the formulaic rom-coms weren't giving funny women the right roles to show off their comedic abilities, and that male-led comedies weren't very relatable. I definitely agree about the the women in rom-coms thing. With Apatow, Feig, and a few actors chosen for the cast, the group did its first table read. After a few years and lots of script changes, the movie finally moved forward. Wig and Mumolo had a different style of humor than Apatow and Feig, and they reportedly argued over the type of humor in the movie. The women wanted to go with a more natural humor that played on everyday moments, while the men wanted slapstick. The incredibly famous dress shop scene, when all the women get sick, was added to appease the producer and the director. Oh, that makes sense. It sure does, doesn't it? <gasps> it makes such sense mm-hmm. now. Yeah, it does. Because wow. I actually prefer their style, the women's style of yes. humor. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting <laughs> that one of the parts that I really didn't like was a <laughs> male-driven part. <laughs> so the film starred Kristen Wiig as Annie. Although she was already well-known for SNL, this was her first starring film role. Annie is meant to be the most relatable character in the film, a woman in her 30s who feels like she doesn't know where her life is going. I feel like a lot of, a yeah. lot of women yeah. do feel that way. Yeah. Yep. Maya Rudolph was cast as Annie's best friend Lillian. Feek specifically brought Rudolph into the casting process because he wanted Wig to play off someone that she was actually friends with. Rather than saying how long the women have been friends in the script, the movie relies on the actor's chemistry to show the audience how close they are. Which is a really good call. Yeah. yeah. I actually think that was really smart to do it that way. Because, mm-hmm. you know, exposition, awkward exposition is so easy to pull out of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? Yep. Wow, I can't believe that. We've been friends since we were in third grade. You've <laughs> never told me that before. You know, just lines yep. like that. Yep. An awkward, like... Oh gosh, flashbacks where it's yes. just these kids playing together and stuff, yeah. and you're like, ah, okay, okay, I, I, guess. I guess I get it. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it was really smart for them to just not say it and just kind of put us in this world where the women are. We see them as friends. We see them interacting. Mm-hmm. We don't need to know how long they've been friends. Yeah, Rose Byrne had recently been in the comedy Get Him to the Greek when she was cast as Helen. Feig realized her potential for the role when he brought her in to play off of Wig. The women were both funny, but in completely different ways that really worked for the characters. The first thing they shot with Rose was the engagement party, particularly the scene where she turns around in her elegant floor-length gown. This is also the scene where she and Kristen Wig keep one-upping each other with speeches, passing the mic back and forth. This scene wherein she turns around in her dress... Yes. It's... A, it's really well done. It's mm-hmm. like really well framed, and uh, you know she, it the, she's this the image absolute image of beauty. She's yes. you know, and it you could see immediately even from that first moment you see the immediate insecurities that Annie has. While they were filming the scene, Paul Fee let the women go back and forth, improvising ways to surpass one another. Rose stepped in and pretended to speak a proverb. Everyone thought it was so funny that they made her learn an actual proverb and speak it in the movie. Wow, that's, oh, that's pretty amazing. Great. Yeah. I went to Thailand recently with my husband Perry, and there's a beautiful saying that I learned there. Kun Ben Sung Nong Kong Chan. Sung Chan Jakat Madai. My Ben Chinnan. It means you are a part of me, a part that I could never live without, and I hope and I pray that I never have to. Ellie Kemper was known for playing Erin on the U.S. version of The Office when she was cast as Becca. Originally, she read for the part of Megan that eventually went to Melissa McCarthy. 
She later said that before shooting, Paul Feig met with each actress about their characters, and she used emails from real brides that she knew as inspiration for her character. Wow, that's pretty good. Wow. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I know. Mm-mm. You imagine being friends with Ellie Kemper, and you go to the movie... Yeah. Yeah, and you see her, she says something in the movie that you said in an email to her. Oh, and you're just my like, gosh. Oh, oh, my God. How, <laughs> shit. how dare you? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> Veteran comedic actress Wendy McClendon Covey of Reno 911 was cast as Rita. She was perfect for the role of the older, frustrated mother of teenage boys. She said she was shocked when she got the part, but her comedic charm perfectly balances with other characters, most notably Ellie Kemper's character, Becca. Yeah. She's the one with the famous line about semen. The other day, I broke a blanket in half. In <laughs> half. I broke it in half. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, they really do balance each other out. The, you got the older mother that has kids and is married for years. And then mm-hmm. this new bride who just got married not too long ago, she says she wants kids. Mm-hmm. and this, Very this, idealistic. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> when Bridesmaids took off, the obvious standout was Melissa McCarthy. The movie made her a household name for her strange and hilarious portrayal of Megan, a part that was almost cut when Feig and Apatow had trouble finding an actress for the part. When McCarthy read for the part, Feig didn't originally understand what she was doing. He said it was kind of weird, and it took him a little bit to to realize that it was one of the funniest things he'd ever seen. Oh, man. Because <laughs> she went in such a strange direction. McCarthy has actually said that she based her performance on Guy Fieri. Oh. oh. <laughs> wow. Wow. Is that a yeah. compliment? or I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that I don't dude know. from Ohio, huh? Yep. <laughs> mm. That's true. We know how to make him. Yeah, <laughs> he's from right here in Flavortown. Another standout moment for McCarthy was the speech Megan gives to Annie to get her back on track later in the movie. Originally, the speech was written for a bill collector who would urge Annie to get it together over the phone. But the writers realized that the scene would better suit a character that the audience already knew. Now you gotta stop feeling sorry for yourself, okay? Because I do not associate with people that blame the world for their problems. Because you're your problem, Annie. And you're also your solution. McCarthy also got the chance to work with her husband. He plays the air marshal on the plane. Oh, that's That's cute. cute. Yeah, and they get together in the movie. Annie Mumolo, who was a co-writer of the movie, is in the movie too. She is only in one scene. She appears on the airplane as a stressed passenger. Oh my gosh, that's her? Yes. She has this really funny line (laughs) where she says, Last night I had a nightmare. That the plane went down. You were there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so you were there. <laughs> complete strangers. Like, I, what? How could I be there? You didn't know me. It was easy for her to appear in the scene as she was on set for sudden rewrites. She was also very pregnant at the time. Oh, my goodness. John Hamm is also in this movie. He plays Ted, Annie's original love interest, and fuck buddy. Ham is actually uncredited for the role at his own request. He was afraid that his name would make it, make audiences think that the film was more dramatic than it was, thus hurting it financially. Oh, oh I guess that's that pretty sweet. nice then. Yeah, yeah, so he took his name, asked him to take his name off of it. Are you sure it wasn't just because of the role he got? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah John Ham is quietly a comedic actor. He just kind of yeah. shows up in comedies... It's it's just like when we talked about those as comedies, yeah, like Airplane, where I was the, the thinking actors that exactly. really aren't comedic actors, but the way they do it is just so funny. Yeah, Chris O'Dowd plays the lovable Irish cop Nathan Rhodes. Originally, O'Dowd was meant to put on an American accent, but the filmmakers liked the authenticity of his Irish voice, and they even rewrote the character to be Irish for him. Thank goodness. Yeah. Like what? They really yeah. I made they made the right call. They really did. Seriously. Best part of the movie. Yes, absolute my favorite doesn't matter. Favorite part yep. of the movie. So Bridesmaids made 169,106,725 dollars in the US and 288,383,523 dollars worldwide. 
Wow. Nice. Yes. Its obvious success paved the way for more R-rated female-led comedies and films in general. It seemed to answer the question, can women be funny? With a resounding yes. Of course, if you listen to our Todd and Pitts episode, it's clear that women were always funny. Yes. Truth. Truth. Yes, and we do mention Bridesmaids in that episode, too. Mm Mm-hmm. So the ratings that the movie got on IMDb, uh, 6.8 out of 10, all three movies tonight Damn. were 6.8 yeah, out of 10 so on IMDb. We yeah. did not plan that. No, we, we did not. No, it was pretty funny. Rotten Tomatoes, it got a 90% from critics and a 76% from the audience. And Metacritic gave it a 75. Nice. So, so I think out of the three, it's the best rated movie yeah. so mm-hmm. far. Yeah. So. Especially by critics. Holy cow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're probably wondering why I'm talking about Bridesmaids, because obviously it's a well-loved movie. It's very, very popular. I did not like it the first time I watched it at all. Mm -hmm. Actually, I would go as far to say that I disliked it, almost hated it. Oh, boy. Yes. I absolutely was not a fan of Bridesmaids. I... I think it was a combination of things. Too much hype, and it wasn't really my brand of humor. I loved Chris O'Dowd, though. That's the one thing that never changed. Oh, yeah. I had just graduated high school, so I didn't really relate to what was happening in the movie, and yet I almost related too much. The scene where Annie gives the speech at the engagement party, which I just talked about with Rose Byrne, gives me terrible secondhand embarrassment. It was really hard for me to watch her be so insecure in her friendship and get pushed away from her best friend by this seemingly horrible woman. If you... If you pull yourself out of it, it is hilarious. It is a very funny scene. Mm. But I just remember, oh, God, just I felt so bad Mm -hmm. watching it because you already at this point, Annie is your female. She's your lead protagonist. You are following her and you're watching her go to this party. She's got her life's kind of falling apart and already she's competing with this perfect woman and it, it is, it's, it's actually really great because there's never really a moment where she really embarrasses herself. Like, she doesn't mm-hmm. fall on her face or anything like that. No. But, so it is very funny, and it's a great scene to watch, but it just, it hurt me so bad. Because it just, I was so, I felt so bad for her. Yeah. After the scene where Annie and Lillian fight at the bridal shower, I turned the movie off. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I was furious that Lillian kicked Annie out of the wedding in the first place and that she didn't even consider that Helen the Horrible, what, how I, what I called her, <laughs> that Helen the Horrible could be causing distance between them. I told myself that they would figure it out and I moved on. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty brutal. So here's why I gave it a second chance. <laughs> Back when we recorded part one, I mentioned that another movie I didn't like was Bridesmaids. I mentioned the movie in their first, the first time we did this episode. My friend Sarah listened to that episode and actually wrote us a letter telling me that I should rewatch it. It's, on, it's the only fan mail we've ever gotten, and it's actually hanging in our studio. So thanks, Sarah. You're the best. Ta-da. Thank you. It's right there. Looking at it now. Yeah. Of course, I waited almost another two years (laughs) to give Bridesmaids a shot. I went into it with an open mind and heart, and I tried to view it through the eyes of an adult woman in 2011. Kind of tried to do some time travel, tried to go back a little bit, since things are slightly different now. Mm -hmm. So here's why I was wrong. I bet you're all wondering this. Wow. Yeah. While I was researching the movie, I found a quote from Kristen Wiig where she expressed that the women making the movie didn't understand what a big deal it was at the time. I can relate to that because even though I knew there weren't a lot of raunchy female comedies, I still didn't understand how this movie could change Hollywood. But even all that aside, I barely gave the movie a first chance. It hit close to home in a way that made it hard for me to watch. I could not stand to watch Annie and Lillian fight. I had such a hard time when Helen stepped in and took over. I was so tired of women being compared to each other and of this constant competition, and that's what I saw in this movie, and that's why I turned it off. Understandable. I mean, if you're just overwhelmed with it, it's just like, why put myself through more? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just really, I really hated the women competing thing. Yeah. But I was wrong to turn it off. In fact, the last act of the movie is undoubtedly my favorite part. When Helen can't find Lillian on the day of her wedding, she comes to Annie for help. 
Up until this point, I genuinely could not tell if Helen was just a heartless woman, hell-bent on destroying a lifelong relationship, or just a lonely person who took charge just because she's used to running the show. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, when I was reading reviews of the movie, Roger Ebert pointed that out. He said, Helen's not a bad person. Yeah. She's just used to being in charge. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really understand what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that there's probably, there's a little bit both ways. Yeah. I think yeah. Helen knew that she was pushing them apart. I think yes. that she knew she was driving distance between them. But I, I don't think that she was doing it maliciously. I think she was being more defensive. Mm-hmm. I think that she found a friend finally, and she was lonely, and she saw Annie as a threat. When she needs Annie's help, Helen is not too proud to ask for it. She apologizes for what she's done. And although the apology is way overdue, it seems sincere. Helen is not a bitch. Helen is alone. And she was on the defensive. And she saw Annie as a threat, just as Annie saw her as one. The way these women can mend their differences in a matter of minutes, it's in a mostly adult way. There's, <laughs> there's, there's some things that happen. You know. <laughs> it really impressed me. I can see how this movie broke new ground in Hollywood, not only because these women subverted expectations by performing raunchy and sometimes crude humor, but because it showed how women can come together without the typical catty stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Generally, there's this wonderful ensemble in the movie, and they are all very different women, and they generally get along. Yeah. They generally are fine. They're mm-hmm. from different, you know, they've got all these different personalities and there isn't this weird air, you know, they're just funny. Like they're, a like a faking it just to be yeah. part of the group kind of thing. Right. It's really they're all they're very authentic characters. They they're just all very true to nice. whatever character it is. And it's really nice that it's like that. The only issues are Helen and Right. And but Annie. I mean, your yeah. movie has to have some kind of drama Exactly. In it. There's yeah. got to be some sort of conflict. Yeah. When it comes to anyone, woman or man, shitting in the middle of the street, it's not really my thing. I don't, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. But that's one scene. When Annie drunkenly struts into first class in the airplane and hilariously delivers the now iconic line, help me, I'm poor, that's funny. Yes. (laughs) The movie was funnier for me the second time. It still made me cringe, but so does Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and The Hangover. Those movies both make me cringe. Uh Aha, absolutely. And as an adult woman, I am grateful that the movie was made to pave the way for more female-led stories. So. Excellent. Yes, I'm glad that I finally, you know, made peace with Bridesmaids after almost 10 years. (laughs) That one's for you, you, Sarah, That's right, right, Sarah. That's just for you. Yep. Better late than never. Yes. That's right. So, two second chance successes. That's right. And Woo. one potential one. If you guys go watch Tron Legacy. That's right. Go watch <laughs> Tron Legacy. And yeah. and and like it so it's a success for all of us. That'd be great. <laughs> just, that'd be great. And if you don't like it, please at Adam. No. On yes. Twitter. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Please. <laughs> um, but that'll do it for this episode. What a great time it was. I love doing these kind of, uh topic episodes where we kind of bring all bring different stuff to the table it's a really fun discussion and i hope we all hope that you enjoyed it as well dear listener so that is a case closed yeah so if you want to hear any more bcd awesomeness go over to blackcasediaries.com it's all there you know the drill by now right Um, but we would appreciate if you would maybe give us a review on iTunes, check out our Patreon. You know, we got some extra goodies there, some bonus episodes if you can't get enough. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.